and welcome to the Good Girl Confessional Podcast. I'm your host, Sandy Lowries, and the award-winning Good Girl Confessional Podcast is proudly brought to us by WB40, Women Beyond 40, a platform for women 40, 50, 60, and beyond who like to share their hard-won wisdom. We hear you, and we're glad you're talking. You can check us out at wb40.com. Before we begin today's podcast, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. In my case, it's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and pay homage to their ancient history of storytelling. Today in the podcast, my very special guest is a proud South Australian politician and executive. Her name is Louise Pfeiffer. Louise is very passionate about both um, altruism and giving, but she's also passionate about animal rights. And as such, she is the vice president of the Animal Justice Party, a political party here in Australia. But she is also um, the director of philanthropy at an extraordinary organisation which is called The Life You Can Save. The Life You Can Save is an organisation um, helping people to give to organisations where they've done all the research and the hard work and they recommend charities and um that are actually all about the money going to those causes. It's a really incredible um, organisation and I'm so thrilled today to be talking to Louise. She's passionate and brilliant. That's the way we like them. And um, I can't wait to be talking to her today. Please give a warm welcome to the confessional, Louise Pfeiffer. Hey there. When Sandy's not interviewing kick-ass women... She's hanging out with me at Alex the Seal, a podcast about music and nostalgia. I'm Joe Pipus, and each episode, Sandy and I talk about all the songs that got us hooked up, knocked up, and broken up. Do yourself a favour and search Alex the Seal on your podcast app. Love you, Molly. Hello, Louise, and welcome to the Good Girl Confessional Podcast. How are you today? Yeah, I am really well, Sandy. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm very excited to have you here. Um, wow, I've you know, looking at everything that you've done, you've achieved like so much at such a young age. Like, I just find it quite phenomenal. Um, I, I'm really, really excited to chat with you today um, because you are the director of philanthropy at a life, the life you can save. And I, in looking into them, I think what an extraordinary organization. And I'm really keen to hear about how your journey there started and what led you there. But for those that don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I, um, uh, I'm from Adelaide. I, uh, um, I went to school, um, in regional South Australia, then moved to the city, then went to university here, uh, but moved to Sydney actually at the age of 20 uh, after I finished my arts degree. And uh, I've got to say, I, when I landed in Sydney, I was a little bit of a country bumpkin. I'd never been there before. I didn't know anyone. Uh, it was a bit of a bit of a gutsy move in hindsight. And I think I said, I'll just move back if I don't like it. But uh, it took 17 years before I actually finally returned to my city of origin, um, which was in 2015 when I came back. 
Um, but my background, so I did an arts degree, but I ended up in financial services. So I ended up having quite an extensive career um, across a variety of roles in institutional funds management and stockbroking, retail banking, um, superannuation, uh, some consulting work. A lot of my career I spent working with financial advisors and business development. Um, and then when I returned to Adelaide, I actually established my own financial advising business for a short time as well. So, uh, but I took on this role at The Life You Can Save in May 2022 after a, a career break and uh, yeah, couldn't be happier. So that, that's the really short version. There's a lot, lot more to it than that, but uh, that's probably a good starting point. There really is. I love that too, that you're, you strike me as someone who's a bit of a, a quester, you know, through life, you like a quest. And I feel like you're constantly uh learning. And I say that because you've gone and done some kind of extraordinary things, ran your own business, which is no small feat in itself. We know that. Um, but then you go on and you studied, like you did an arts degree, but you've also studied ethics and philosophy. So I'm really quite interested in that. I mean, it feels like, you know, you, you are passionate about a number of things, but then you put your money where your mouth is and you go and you learn about these things. I love that. Mm, yeah, I, uh, it was one of those sliding door moments, actually, when I finished at 12 and I had an offer to do mechanical engineering and I had an offer to do arts. And I thought, well, you know what, I was really into Ally McBeal and I thought, you know what, I want to do arts and see if I can get into law at the end of that arts degree. And uh, even though I was quite numerically inclined and I really enjoy numbers, um, I uh, took on the, yeah, I thought arts, arts just sounded really interesting. You could just do such a broad range of topics. So not just philosophy, you could study anthropology, um, psychology. I actually ended up majoring in psychology at university. And, but when I studied, uh, when I chose to do philosophy, of which, you know, there's quite a, quite a number of subjects within that, uh, I, um, you know, such as philosophy, religion, the, the one that really stuck with me was when I studied ethics. So, you know, wind back the clock to 1995, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 20, just, uh, no, I was 17, about 18. And the course of ethics, the main textbook for that was Practical Ethics, written by the Australian moral philosopher Peter Singer. And Practical Ethics covers a wide range of topics such as uh, abortion, pornography, animal rights, um, morality and affluence, which is, you know, kind of a precursor to where I've ended up in the end. Uh, but I just found it so fascinating. I was like, well, um, so philosophy, I guess, taught me how to think. It gave me some frameworks, which, you know, I kind of had from being brought up as a Christian and Lutheran, but it delved a bit deeper and took, I guess, the religious component out of it. And it's like, well, if I, if I want to live an ethical life, then how do I actually do that? And why would I want to do it at all? And the case was just laid out so in such a straightforward manner. I've, I've, I found that Peter Singer has an extraordinary way of explaining concepts, uh, you know, bit by bit, you know, it takes you along the journey and at the end you go, oh, yeah, I think I need to uh, change something in my life so that I'm living in accordance with my values and, and uh, yeah, it compelled me into action. So at that point in time, so this was in 1995, I, um, after I studied animal rights, I became a vegetarian then. And, you know, I kind of, what I hadn't understood until that point is that how much animals actually suffer. So in the factory farming system, and he explains it in, in, um, in, in, a, in a matter of fact way, like it's not emotional. It's just, you know, these are the conditions animals live in. 
and this is getting worse. You know, you know, 100 years ago, factory farming didn't exist. And I went, oh, okay, I, I don't like that. I always got an affinity with animals like most people did. You know, when, when I grew up at Murray Bridge, we had chickens out the back. And I was the only one in my family that would be able to go up to the chickens and pick them up, you know, like the chickens would run away from everyone else. But, you know, I always had this affinity. And I also um, was always struck when we drove from Murray Bridge to Adelaide, which is about an hour away from each other, and there'd be, you know, sheep on uh, trucks, you know, being transported for either live export or to abattoirs. And, you know, on those hot days, I was, you know, little Louise is looking out the window of the car in the back seat, looking up at these sheep that are crammed in on those hot days. And I just, you know, just didn't feel right at all. But it wasn't until I, I, I studied um, not just practical ethics as the main textbook, but on the reading list was animal liberation that I, I, um, I guess, fully understood their suffering and decided I didn't want to take part in, I guess, eating land animals anymore. And so I became a vegetarian, much to the, I guess, the uh, disruption of the family and <laughs> family gatherings. But I was determined to do what felt right for me after learning uh, about that. And in fact, I've actually got down here at the back here would be my copy of Animal Liberation from 1995, which um, I'm intending to get Peter Singer to sign when I see him next, actually. <laughs> Um, I, I love that passion. I think what was really fascinating to me is one thing that I read about you was um, that motherhood was made such an impact on you. Obviously, motherhood makes an impact on us. But for you having a child and, and suddenly becoming a mum actually made you think about, um, as you said, animal rights in a very different way again. Mm. Um, tell me about that, a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, I was, how old was I? I can't remember in my 30s, I guess, when I had my first child. And, and you know, it's obviously a massive shift of in consciousness occurs for most people. You know, be having to care for another human, it's it's, it's really quite extraordinary. The, uh, the way it changes your worldview in many ways. And for, for me, um, it, it did two things, actually, within 12 months. And uh, the first thing was... I was uh, feeding, uh, nursing my child, breastfeeding, and he was maybe four or five months old at the time. And I was watching the project. I think it was called the 7 p.m. project at the time. So this is when I was living in Melbourne. And they did a, a, a special on bobby cars, which uh, is um, a, you know mostly unknown uh, waste product of the um, dairy industry. So in order for, um, this is what I didn't fully understand, in order for a mammal to produce breast milk, they must be either pregnant or breastfeeding. And, and so cows are forcibly impregnated and then they have their calves taken away from them so that they produce milk and the calf doesn't drink it. And I, I've, I had actually learned about it many, you know, back in 1995, but I just kind of put it to one side. It was just going to be too hard to contemplate. And I guess because at that particular time I was nursing my own child and, and watched this and I went, oh yeah, I remember learning about that. And then you know, that night I went, I, I started having nightmares about what, what would happen if someone took my baby away from me and I couldn't find him. And that's, and I felt this real feeling as to how dairy cows were feeling because they bellow for their young once they're taken away from them. And I was just so emotionally, I guess, I was distraught for days and uh, I ended up digging uh, animal liberation out again and reread it. And it was, it was in there the whole time. I just, I guess, didn't, wasn't prepared to make the changes I didn't fully understand the I guess what uh, dairy cows would go through but as becoming a mother that just fully that completely impacted me and I said I don't want to participate in the system that exploits the female reproductive system one which separates mothers from their uh, babies um, in the case of the cows 
And I, yeah, I decided that, you know, that's it. I'm going to, I'm going to become vegan. And, uh, yeah, like it was literally something that happened within, you know, a matter of weeks. Um, and, uh, then I said to my husband, I want to, you know, raise our child vegan as well, because I thought, well, you know, if our family values are compassion towards animals, non-violence, uh, and wellness, um, because there's some really great health benefits for eating a plant-based diet, then it made sense to, to raise our child that way too. And, and my husband, um, Phil, he said, okay, that's fine, but can you just go and research the health side of it? Because, you know, we've all been brought up to say, you know, you need meat for protein, you need uh, dairy for calcium, all those things. And I came across a book called um, The China Study, which is, uh, it's not just one study, it's actually a, kind of a literature review of about 600 different studies that go back about 100 years. And it shows that the higher proportion of plants that someone has in their diet, the less likely they are to suffer from diseases of affluence, such as um, atherosclerosis or, you know, heart disease or um diabetes or other things. So basically a lot of the illnesses that afflict our, our society here can be avoided by eating a high proportion of plant-based foods. So not, not your vegan junk food, but your whole plant-based foods because of the high levels of uh, fiber and vitamins, etc. And at the time my husband had high cholesterol and uh, so, and he's an engineer. So I handed him this book and he's like, oh, okay, maybe I am. Um, uh, there's actually a lot to this. And his doctor had I think within the last month or so had told him he was going to have to go on statin drugs for the rest of his life because wow. his cholesterol was quite elevated and he was 40 at the time. And so Phil read this book and he went, that makes a lot of sense. I'm an engineer. I'm, you know, he specializes in preventive maintenance and he, he and so he stopped eating meat, dairy and eggs the next day. He wasn't even vegetarian. Like he was, you know, he just went cold turkey. And within two or three months, he dropped 20 kilos and, you know, his cholesterol was down to a level that was meant that he didn't have to go on statin drugs, which was interesting because his doctor said there was no other way that he could avoid going on statin drugs. And so, yeah, we adopted yeah, a, a plant-based diet, vegan lifestyle. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was back in 2011. So that was quite a pivotal moment. And uh, I've got to say, I, wouldn't, I won't lie, it was socially quite awkward. But now that 11, almost 12 years has passed, it feels like I, I, I wouldn't change a thing. I was going to say, I, I think that it's more broadly sort of accepted, I think, in recent times as well, as, as not just a um, moral choice, but also, too, as a lifestyle choice. And that, you know, mm. I think there's more and more people saying, oh, I'm a vegan, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I live these days, but, you know, like <laughs> five or seven years ago. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And I always find like, you know, um, huge functions and things when they're asking about dietary requirements, that it comes up quite a lot. People say, I'm Hello, Sandy here from the Good Girl Confessional podcast. The Good Girl Confessional podcast is proudly brought to us by WB40, a platform for women 40, 50, 60 and beyond. Thank you so much for watching this video. If you'd like to see the rest of the video, please head over to WB40. 40.com and subscribe to WB40 Extra. By subscribing to WB40 Extra, you're helping to support the hard-won wisdom of incredible women. So thank you. Please remember to like, share and follow.